Find your place in John chapter 9 today, and I want to speak to you about seeing through the suffering. Seeing through the suffering. Sometimes if you go through hard times, if you go through a trial, all we can see is the trial, and it's difficult to see through it and to see what lies on the other side of it or to see what the purpose of it is. If you're like me, sometimes I only see the problem that, that I'm having to deal with. And I have to kind of step back and say, okay, what's God trying to teach me through this? What's God want me to see? What's he trying to work out according to his will through this? So sometimes he uses or allows suffering or hardship to come into our life to help us to see what he really wants to accomplish. So today, we're going to look at a very familiar story in John 9 in a sermon entitled, Seeing Through the Suffering. So follow with me in your copy of God's Word as we begin reading in verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay, and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation, sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he, and others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus. A way maker, right? A man that is called Jesus, a miracle worker, a light in the darkness, made clay, anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash, and I went and washed, and I received sight. So may God add his blessings today as we look at seeing through the suffering. A great deal of mankind's endeavor has to do with how well we see. Many years ago, back in the 1700s, Benjamin Franklin, as he got older, was like myself struggling to see. And he worked out a way where uh, he put within the same frame of a pair of glasses uh, a piece of glass that would allow him to see off in the distance and then another piece of glass that would allow him to see when things that were close up. So there he invented the bifocals. And aren't we thankful for that and the contribution that Ben Franklin made to humanity. Now today we have trifocals and we have no-line trifocals and bifocals and it helps all of us who are moving on up in years. So we are grateful for that. Before the invention of the microscope, man was limited in how uh, he could see the small things in God's creation. About the smallest thing that the human eye could see is about the half of the width of a human hair. But now with the advent of the microscope, mankind is able to see things that before the microscope uh, came into existence that he, he never even knew existed. So it is remarkable how 
much energy and time and effort man has spent in helping himself to see. Back in 1995, the Hubble Space Telescope that had been um, really operational for a number of years was zoned to sit and look at one particular sliver of space for some 10 days. And the pictures that came back in 1995, known as the Hubble Deep Field, were astonishing. It is said by looking beyond the Milky Way galaxy, that is outside our galaxy, the, the telescope was able to see uh, solar systems that we never knew existed. Recent images contain more than, get this, 5,000 galaxies. And they say that some of them are as far away as 13 billion light years, meaning traveling at the speed of light, it would take 13 billion years to reach us. So how well man sees and how far man sees is an endeavor that has garnered a great deal of attention. I read the story of a turtle that was crossing the road. And as the turtle was crossing the road, he got mugged by two snails. Picture that. And the police came to investigate, and they asked the turtle what happened. And the turtle simply replied, it all happened so fast I didn't see a thing. <laughs> so how well we see has captured a great deal of attention from mankind. Today we're going to look in the life of a scene in the life of the Lord Jesus uh, that really has its context all the way back in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple, and he is teaching, and uh, the listeners bring before him a woman that had been caught in the very act of adultery. And they said to him, Lord, what should we do with this woman? The Old Testament tells us that we should stone her. What do you say that we do? And they really were not interested in the woman. They were just interested in trying to trap Jesus or to put him in an awkward situation. And right there in the temple that day, Jesus said, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. And all of the, those who were there that day holding those rocks had to drop them in conviction and walk away. Later on in chapter 8, Jesus talks about the fact that he's God in the flesh. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. Not I will be, not I used to be, but I am. That is the eternal one, the, the eternal son of God and God in the flesh. This so offended the listeners that day, that in verse number 59 of chapter 8, the Bible says they picked up stones to hurl at him. Notice that. They took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, so he passed by. So even Jesus had people to throw rocks at him. So if you have folk to throw rock at you, just consider that you're in pretty good company. That is, if it's for the right reasons. If they threw rocks at Jesus, certainly they will throw them at you and I. But as he leaves the temple, he is moving into what is now chapter 9, and he passes a gentleman who had been blind from his birth. And that's where you pick up the scene in verse number 1. Jesus passed by, saw a man which was blind from his birth. Put yourself in his sandals for a moment. Having never seen a ray of sunshine, having never seen the beauty of nature's landscape, here was a man who had never seen the faces of his loved ones. He knew nothing about the, the color spectrum uh, and the beauty of the world around him, but all of his life was spent in physical darkness. 
And uh, Jesus walks by this man who no doubt was a beggar. In fact, the, the scriptures describe him as a beggar a little later on. Here's a man who is living in a constant state of trouble, a constant state of suffering, if you will. It has been said that everybody, that's everybody now, is either heading for a storm, or you're in a storm, or you just come out of a storm. So all of us are in that boat today. You're either headed for one, you're right in the middle of one right now, or you just came out of one. And sometimes in those storms, in those moments of suffering, it's hard to understand what God's up to. It's hard to see through that struggle and to see in proper perspective what God wants us to see. So what I want to do today is we want to look at the story of this blind beggar, and I want to give you four realities of suffering that Jesus shares with us in this passage. Four realities about suffering that I want you to notice. First of all, I want you to jot down the fact that suffering usually prompts the why question. Suffering usually prompts the why question. What happens when any of us go through a hard time? Ordinarily, we respond by saying, why? Why? Look in verse number two, if you will. When they pass by this blind man, the disciples ask him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, they verbalize their question with who? Who's responsible for this, this man or his parents? But you know what they were really asking? They were really asking, why? Why is this man blind? Why is this man blind? What did he do to deserve the blindness? What happened? Was it something he did wrong? Was it something his parents did wrong? But why is the bottom line, why is he blind? So suffering and struggles and hardships always prompt the why question. Now, there were a number of reasons that people could be blind in the, uh, in the days that Jesus lived. Uh, sometimes it could be for unsanitary reasons. Sometimes it could be from certain type of birth defects or maybe even just the blowing, driving wind and sand can cause a person to be blind. But here was a man who was blind from his birth. And the question is, why was he blind? So we have those why questions when troubles come. Why are there natural disasters? Hurricanes and tornadoes, earthquakes. Why is there COVID-19? I mean, we were all just minding our own business in January, were we not? And suddenly we hear of this cloud of a, of a virus that is approaching the United States, and in just a little while it hops from state to state to state to state, and here we are now, uh, 10 months removed from it, still dealing with this global pandemic. And we ask ourselves, why? Life may have been going so good for you. But COVID has interrupted that. Maybe your job has been interrupted for, because of that. Your finances have been interrupted because of that. Your very health or the health of your loved ones have been interrupted because of that. And we ask ourselves, why? Why do we have to deal with COVID-19? Or why do we have to deal with uh, a job that didn't work out? Or why do we have to deal with physical sickness or sickness in my family or broken relationships in my family. Everybody from time to time struggles with that why question. Why did it happen to me? Why did it happen to my family? 
Why did my loved one get cancer? Why, why did my spouse die early when we had so many plans to retire and to benefit from all of our hard work? Why do those kind of things happen? Sometimes it challenges us to probe the connection between a God who loves us but sees us in our suffering and sees us in our hurt. Now listen, I have tried my best to give my life to the ministry. and I've past, pastored many years now and I've tried to teach the Bible faithfully and preach the Bible faithfully and to help others know God and know how much God loves them through all the situations of life and that he is indeed a way maker and a miracle worker and a light in the darkness. But I must confess to you there are times in my life as a minister when I walk through, say, a place like Children's, Brenner's Children's Hospital down, at, down in, in Winston-Salem, and you see little children, little innocent children, and some of them are terminal. And I look into the faces of a young mother and a father who are spending resources and time and energy trying to help their child get better, and it just doesn't look like it's going to get better. And I must say to you, I too leave those places sometimes saying, Why? is the world the shape that it's in and people suffer the way they suffer you remember even on the cross Jesus as he was going through this pains and excruciating torment of crucifixion said my God why why have you forsaken me everybody from time to time asks that why question well of course we know the theological answer to that as we live in a fallen world, we are fallen people, we have fallen bodies, and bad things happen. Bad things happen to everybody. The Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on those who are living right and those who don't live right. Uh, the, the, the person who doesn't know God benefits from common grace like the person who lives for God. We both enjoy God's sunshine and God's rain and God's blessings and God's oxygen. So we ask ourselves, why is it that in this world, now and again, we know the theological answer, it's because we're fallen, but still, doesn't it hurt to see people suffer, right? Children especially. Or to see people who love God suffer. It may be one thing, not that we would get any kind of pleasure in it, but maybe um, in our own rational way of thinking, we might feel like it would be a little bit more justifiable if only murderers and thieves and people like that were people who got sick and got cancer, you would say, well, maybe they deserve that. Nobody really deserves it, but you know what I'm saying. But when you see other people who are trying to do right and live for God or children who are innocent and they get sick, we too are prompted to ask why. It's because suffering always makes us probe for that. That's what the disciples here said to Jesus. Who sin, this man or his parents, that he's born blind. And what they were really saying is, why is he blind? Give us an answer. Give us a, a reason for it. Look in, uh, look in verse, number, uh, verse number two at what happens. They ask him, saying, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're looking for an answer. They're looking for an explanation, which really brings us to our second point. Suffering prompts why questions, but secondly, I want you to know, suffering comes without explanation. God has never said to us, 
that he's going to answer every why question that we have. Sometimes we struggle and there is no understandable reason for it. You remember Job in the Old Testament? I mean, Job went through a whirlwind of trouble. He lost his family, his health, his wealth. He lost everything. Even his wife said, Job, just throw up your hands, curse God, and die. But God would say about Job that he was a just man, that he was upright, one of the most spiritually mature men of his day. And uh, Job struggled, as would anybody, and certainly looked for an explanation as to why bad things happened. So these disciples, they were asking Jesus that very question. Who is responsible and why is he blind? Is it something he did or is it something his parents did? Now, oftentimes uh, during the days that Jesus lived, Jewish people who lived um, in a Greek-influenced world, we know that Rome was ruling at that time, but they had just come off the heels of what we call a Hellenistic or a Greek-influenced society. And Jews who were living in close relationship to, uh, to the philosophy of the Greeks um, kind of um, took on the belief system that the Greeks uh, had, which said they believed in the pre-existence of the soul. Now what I mean by that is not the post-existence of the soul, that after you die your soul still lives. The Greeks, many of them, believed that before you ever were born that your soul existed somewhere uh, in eternity. There are other faiths that, that, that teach that. We don't see that in the scripture, but nonetheless that's what the Greeks believed. And that if your soul existed somewhere back in eternity past, that you could have sinned in your soul, and that that's why you, you were born into a body that was uh, uh, handicapped or had a disability to that. So the question that they probed to Jesus is, was this something that this guy did in his soul long before he was born? Or was this something that his parents did and the backwash of all of that flowed into this man's life? So tell us, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? In other words, what they were looking for is they were looking for a sin explanation. But suffering seldom comes with explanations. You know, I have a, I have a thought on this, which uh, usually I have nothing that's original. This is probably not original either, but I think it is, so I'm going to claim it. Um, when, we, when, we think about, when, we, when we think about suffering, oftentimes we feel like if I only knew why, I'd feel better about it. I don't think that's true. I think the only thing that would make us feel better about it would be if the circumstance was not the same. Meaning, if my loved one died, to know why they died doesn't change the end result that my loved one died, right? What we're really saying is I didn't want my loved one to die. So the explanation oftentimes falls flat anyway, and God doesn't promise us an explanation. God just says, you trust me. Just trust me and know that I'm the way maker, the miracle worker. I'm the light in the darkness. And anytime you go through those trials and those hardships, you just keep your head up. You keep looking to the Lord, and you keep trusting God because God will see you through that. He doesn't have to explain doesn't have to give us answers. We just know and trust that God is loving and kind and sovereign, and God created this world. God can do whatever he chooses to do. So not always is there an explanation. But in this text, Jesus is going to answer to some degree their question. Look in verse 3. If you're listening, say amen. 
So Jesus answered, now look at his answer. This man didn't sin, nor his parents. Now let me just say very quickly, we know that, you know, we, since we don't believe in the pre-existence of the soul, that there's no way this man would have sinned before he was born, right? So it couldn't have been something he did. And then we also know that the Bible says in the Old Testament, now listen carefully, there are times the consequences of parents' sinfulness can, have, can flow down and have negative consequences on the children. Because the Bible says um, that, uh, that, the, that the children will be affected to the third and the fourth generations. Um, what that means is, for example, if I could illustrate it maybe this way. If uh, my wife and I, when we were raising our children, uh, we got into a big argument, and, um, and she blacked my eye. Now, I would have said I blacked her eye, but any of you who know my wife, you know I would never black her eye, and I would never get away with that. So she blacked my eye, and we got into a big altercation and a big fight, and she ended up killing me, all right? Our children then would grow up without a dad and mom in jail, and they would deal with the consequences of mine and my wife's actions. And it's not that God punishes them for something my wife and I have done. It is just simply that the consequences of our actions flows down into their lives. That's what the disciples continually thought here. What was it that the parents did that flowed down into the lives of this man that made him blind? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. This is not the case because not every single sickness is a result of somebody doing something wrong. That sometimes you can be sick and it's just because you're sick. It's not because you did something wrong. Sometimes you can slip on ice and you could break an arm or you could break a leg or something. It's not because you sinned and that you did something wrong. We know that ultimately all sickness, sickness in life is a result of original sin. But when we get sick, you get cancer, don't feel guilt and say God's punishing me for something I've done in my life. You get heart disease, please don't feel guilt and say, God is getting back at me over something that I've done wrong in my life. I don't believe God works that way. But the disciples in their thinking is, Jesus, you tell us. Was it something this man did or was it something that his parents did that caused this man to be blind? So uh, Jesus basically says, if you go back to verse number three, he says, neither this man nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him that he's pushing their whole argument of sin and suffering aside. And he's saying that you can't always equate sin and suffering directly. And that's not the point, he says. The point is that I have a plan. The point is that I have a purpose. The point is, I'm going to do something that's bigger than this man's blindness, which tells us God may allow suffering in my life and your life to affect a greater purpose. Now, let me say that again because none of us like trouble, right? None of us like heartache. But there are times that God may allow it to come into our lives to affect a greater purpose. You say, quali qualify that, Pastor Darrell. Let me give you three quick reasons. Sometimes God may allow trouble to come, or even suffering, to equip us. 
I said in the first service this morning that trees that, that grow up with, no, with very little wind, they have a shallow root system oftentimes, and then the first good wind that comes, it blows them down. But trees that grow with strong winds, it makes the roots deep, grow deeper and deeper and hold on tighter and tighter because they're used to that strong wind. Even a palm tree doesn't have a whole lot of uh, a root surface, is able to bend and flex with the wind. So God allows troubles, winds to rage in our life, to bend us and to flex us and to make our roots grow deeper and deeper and to equip us. Here's a passage. Remember, Paul the Apostle said in the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, he says, God is the God of all comfort, who comforts you when you go through trouble so that you who are going through trouble can in turn comfort other people who are going through trouble. That's a great passage, is it not? Meaning that if you know somebody that's gone through cancer treatments and chemotherapy and, and uh, radiation treatments and all of those things, if you've gone through that, you can encourage that person and help that person in a way that maybe I could never encourage them because I've never been through something like that. If you experience the loss of a loved one and your spouse died prematurely, you can minister to somebody who is a lonely widow or widower, and you can say, I know how you're feeling. I can't say, I know how you're feeling. I can offer them Bible verses. I can pray with them and stand with them and cry with them, but I don't really know how they're feeling because I've not walked through that. But someone who's walked through it can say, I know exactly what you're going through. And God saw me through. Listen, and the same God who saw me through, Aren't you glad he'll see you through too, amen? Because he is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our trouble, in all of our tribulation. So sometimes he lets str struggles and suffering come to equip us. But secondly, sometimes he lets suffering comes, come to strengthen us. To strengthen us. Where would we be if we never had any trouble? Where would we be if we never had any problems, I have a feeling that we would, we would believe that we could make it through this life and we wouldn't need God. But isn't it the struggles and the hard times that drive us back to God and force us to recognize our dependence upon him? You remember, Paul had a thorn in the flesh and three different occasions he knocked on heaven's door and he says, Lord, I would be so much better for you if you would take this thorn from my flesh. And God said to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient. Basically, he says, I'm not going to take it away, but I'm going to give you the grace to live with it. And then he says, in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. We know God when we're going through trials, perhaps unlike any other time uh, of our lives. So trials and suffering can strengthen us and can equip us. But you know, also, God can use those sufferings to correct us. Sometimes we get off track, and God can bring a little trouble in our life, and it'll wake us up and say, hey, I better get back on track. Isn't that right, or does that only happen to me? But it does happen, doesn't it? It happens to all of us. We think we've got the bull by the horns, and all of life is going just fine, and we get a little careless on our Bible study, or our prayer time, or our devotional time, or our witnessing time, or our worship time. 
And we think, well, now that COVID's here, nobody will ever miss me if I don't go back to church for a while. Oh, yeah. Listen, if you're listening by internet or by television, we miss you and we love you. And you're still part of us. And we recognize if you're, you know, you're not able to come now, we don't want you to feel guilty for that. But, um, but we also want you to know that, that uh, sometimes you go through these struggles and you go through these troubles in life. God can use them to bring us back in alignment with where we should be with him. And he gets our attention through that. Uh, David said in Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray. In other words, God used that affliction to straighten him back out. So sometimes suffering prompts the why question. Secondly, suffering comes without explanation. Thirdly, suffering reminds us of our responsibility. Notice verse number four. Notice what Jesus says. He says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He says that twice back in chapter 8, verse number 12. He says, I'm the light of the world. That light in the darkness that our praise team sang about. The way maker, the miracle worker. And then he says it here again in verse number 5. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So suffering reminds us of our responsibilities. Look what Jesus does. He had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made clay, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. What he basically says is, my responsibility is to do the work of God in times of suffering or in times when we're not going through times of suffering. That our responsibility as Christians is to do the work of God because he says the time is short. That there's coming a time when, when the day is over and nobody can work. Meaning that when you get to heaven, um, you'll never have to witness to anybody or you'll never need to witness to anybody is a better word because no one in heaven will need to be witnessed to. But everybody in this world that's lost needs to be witnessed to, right? So we work while we have the opportunity because there's coming a day when the opportunity will be gone. That uh, in this world, we pray for people who need prayer. But in heaven, you'll never pray for anybody. All the work will be done once we get to heaven. We do the work now because there's coming a time when the time to work will be over with. And you can never get that back. So we have to take our personal responsibility right now to say, I want to roll up my sleeves and I want to work. I want to work for God if it means investing in the lives of children, investing in the lives of music ministry, investing in the lives of missionaries or whatever I can do. But I want to do the work of God while I have breath in my lungs because one of these days it will all be over. And only what we have done for Christ will last. So in this scene, Jesus scoops down and he picks up a handful of dirt and he spits in it and he makes, makes clay and he puts it on this man's eyes. And, you know, you can read and read a lot of different uh, commentators and they all have a, a different uh, slant on why maybe Jesus did this. Uh, but nobody can really say with certainty why he used the mud. I mean, all he had to do was speak the words, isn't that right? And the man would have been healed. But for some reason, he chooses to use the mud. Perhaps since he already got in trouble in chapter 8 for declaring his divinity before Abraham was, I am, 
that maybe he illustrates it now in chapter 9 by taking a handful of dirt in John 9, just like God did in Genesis 2 when he first created man and formed him from the dust of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. And now here is Jesus illustrating that thing over again and he scoops down in John's gospel. He picks up a handful of dirt, he spits in it, he makes clay, and he put, puts it on this man's eyes as a reminder of our responsibility to work, to work. And to see the through the eyes of compassion people who are hurting and to try to reach out and touch the lives of people for the gospel. Jesus could have just said the word, but I believe he recognized the power of the touch and he physically touched this man with this clay. So suffering reminds us of our responsibility, responsibility to work, but it also tempers our expectations. Look in verse number uh, 7. After he anoints the eyes of this man, he says, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which by interpretation is sent. And he went his way, he washed, and he came seeing. That is, the man was miraculously healed. And uh, verse number 8, The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is thus this not he that sat and begged? And some said, This is he. And others says, Well, he looks like him. But he said, well, yeah, it's me. And the, the, uh, the excitement of this man's healing was tempered by the other group saying that was, that was present there that day, saying, this kind of looks like the guy who used to sit here and beg for money. But I remember him as being blind, which is really a picture to you and us, you and I, of once we get saved and we try to live for the Lord, that there'll always be folk out there in the world who will say, oh, yeah, I remember that person when. I remember that person when. When they used to be this way and when they used to be that way. You know, you can never change your past. Isn't that right? You can't put the toothpaste back in a tube. You can't unring a bell. All you can do is live for God now and make a difference. One of my favorite verses um, comes from the book of Joel where the Bible says that God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And the devil may have chewed away at a lot of the years in your life, but let that stay in the past. Just set your face toward God, and you move forward. And there might be folk who will criticize you, or there might be folk who, who don't understand the changes in your life, but do like this blind man, one of my favorite characters in the Bible. He says, yeah, it's me. I used to be blind. In fact, if you were to scan down the page, I believe it's all the way down in verse number 25, as they accuse Jesus of healing the guy on the Sabbath day and all kinds of, of a mess, this blind man says, well, I don't know if anything that you're saying is true or not, but what I do know is before I met him I was blind, but now I can see. And isn't that true for all of us? Before we met the Lord, we were blind. But aren't you glad now God's given you sight? Spiritual sight. True sight insight with the Holy Spirit who lives in your life and God helps you see through the trials now and see through the suffering and see through the heartache to the other side and to know listen though it might be 2020 and we're dealing with COVID right now we're not home yet but one day we'll be home though we're dealing with a pandemic 
though we're dealing with the struggles even of our national election as I stand here before you today, we're not home yet. And all the heartache and the trials of life, we're just pilgrims passing through. We're not home yet. But one day, we will be home. Right now, we see through the glass darkly, the Scripture says, but then the veil will be lifted. Praise God, we'll see face to face the author of our salvation, the Lord Jesus. So everybody goes through trials, but those trials are not working against us. Those trials are working for us. William Carey was the father of modern missions. He served in India for some 40 years as a missionary. Imagine that. This is all the way back in the late 1700s. He was a scholar. He was a linguist. He was able to translate portions of Scripture into a, over a dozen languages of the, of the Indian people. One afternoon, 20 years of labor, 20 years of his hard work, so about halfway through his tenure, there was a fire that broke out in his study and in his warehouse that consumed his manuscripts, that consumed his research, that consumed all of his files and all of his hard work. And how would you imagine? It'd be like having everything in all your life stored on your laptop, and then it crashed, and you can't retrieve any of those files. I have, I have files on my computer of, of things that I have studied and, and, and my thesis and a number of things, and I have it backed up, and then I have the backup backed up, and then I have the backup of the backup of the backup because I don't want to lose it. But just suppose you lost all of the important stuff and it was gone in a moment. You think, I could never recover from that. But William Carey, sifting through the charred remains of his, of his study in his warehouse, sat down, and rather than being bitter, he wrote a letter to his pastor, Andrew Fuller, in England, and this is what he wrote. The ground must be labored over again, but we are not discouraged. We have all been supported under the affliction and preserved from discouragement. To me, the consideration of the divine sovereignty and the wisdom has been very, very supporting, and I endeavor to improve this, our affliction, last Lord's Day, from Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I principally dwelt upon two ideas. Number one, God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as he pleases. And number two, we ought to acquiesce in all that God does with us and to us. In other words, he is saying, I've learned to see through the suffering. That whatever God's up to that I may not understand, that ultimately all things work together for good to those who love him. Amen, church? Even the struggles of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so gracious and so good. You are not to belabor it, but it is so true, that way maker and miracle worker. Thank you that you are that light in the darkness. As we have this hymn of invitation in just a moment, and we invite folk to make decisions for you. If there's one under the sound of my voice that has never been saved, maybe, Lord, like the blind man today, they want to come and say, Pastor Darrell, I want to receive my spiritual sight and give my life to Christ. Others who want to unite with our church family, the doors of our church are open, and they can come 
and, Lord, request membership into our church family. Maybe others, Lord, who just want to come and pray, take the invitation and use it in a way that will honor you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.